0: Good morning, this is Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon. Early in the morning of November 16th, 1989, a group of soldiers entered a Catholic college campus in San Salvador, forced six Jesuit priests from their beds, then shot and killed them, along with their housekeeper and her daughter. It happened during the decades-long civil war that ravaged El Salvador in the 1980s. The murders provoked international outrage. Today I'm joined by three guests to discuss the massacre the priest's mission, and their legacy. So let's go around the table and introduce yourselves.
1: My name is Michael Lee. I'm Associate Professor of Theology at Fordham University, and I teach in Latin American and Latino Studies.
2: I'm Jim McCartan, Associate Professor of Theology, uh, work on American religious history, and I direct something called the uh, Center on Religion and Culture here at Fordham.
3: My name is Neil Connolly, and I'm an assistant pastor. I'm a priest, and I'm an assistant pastor at St. Francis de Sales Church on
0: East 96th Street. So why were these priests killed, and why in this particular way?
1: These men were dragged from their beds in the middle of the night and shot right on the campus, uh, the Jesuit University in San Salvador. And I think in the case particularly of the president, Ignacio Yecuria, there's a perfect symbol. He was shot in the head, and it was for their brains, for their intellectual work. So uh, it was Symbolic. It was definitely symbolic. Uh, They were seen as a kind of masterminds of the resistance in the country, fairly or unfairly. But it was their intellectual work in bringing out the injustices of the country that uh, garnered them so much hatred, uh, numerous bombings over the previous decade, and then ultimately their murders.
0: Now, we know a civil war was going on, but what were the Jesuit priests doing specifically in El Salvador?
1: Their mission statement says that they were dedicating themselves to studying the national reality. Um, you could see it in the, in the institutes that they founded. They had an institute for public opinion that took surveys throughout the country, especially of a population that was, you know, never asked any questions.
0: Now, you talked a little about the human violations. What was the political climate like in El Salvador at this time, which was about the 1980s, correct?
1: Yes, Well, we think we know something about polarized politics in the United States today. Uh, Sadly, we know nothing compared to the situation in El Salvador uh, where uh, something as benign as um, uh, teaching uh, peasants how to count and read can be considered subversive. Communist could get you kidnapped, tortured, and murdered. Uh, Labor unions, um, uh, opposition political parties, you could be a target under the label of communist subversion, for even just speaking out for better wages. So it was a, an incredibly tense, polarized society, uh, very violent, and uh, in ways that it's, it's hard for us to fathom.
0: Part of Father Eyacuria's goal for this particular campus uh, was a commitment to teaching and research. What were some of his other goals? Because, Michael, you wrote, some books actually won some awards also for your writing. So, what was his goal? What was the purpose for him being there?
1: Well, it's interesting. Along with teaching and research, uh, the other focus of the UCA was called what they called social projection. It means that they strove to be a university with a center outside itself. The problems of the poor majority of that country were the center of focus for the university. They dedicated their intellectual. Acumen, their their research, all of that was dedicated to studying the national reality, in a context in which that was silenced by a controlled media, by a military dictatorship that didn't want the reality of the country out there.
0: And what made you want to write about them?
1: What I think is remarkable about these Jesuit martyrs is: here are men of privilege, here are men of education, here are men of relative power, yet they model a way of being priests, a way of being scholars, that, that is totally at the service of these ones that Ella called the poor majority. And I think for us in North America, it's, it's an amazing example. That extraordinary mission that they modeled, I think is a lesson that I know I, as an academic in a North American university, need to keep learning from.
0: Jim, being the director of the Fordham Center on Religion and Culture, so how does your center go about continuing these
2: ideas and traditions? These murders in 1989 of the six Jesuits and their two co-workers put the leaders of Jesuit higher education in the United States on notice in a way, uh, reminding them that higher education in a Jesuit tradition is really about discovering how individuals and communities can work together for justice. And so what we try to do uh, in our center is through public conversation about uh, issues of contemporary relevance, to continue a conversation about how it is our mission as a Jesuit university to serve justice.
0: Do you actively talk about the uh, Jesuit martyrs?
2: I wouldn't say that we actively do that on a regular basis. I think that uh, that the stories of the Jesuit martyrs um, are stories that they're very much a part of the self-understanding. Um, over the past 25 years, these stories have been told and retold through, you know, to a generation and more of students, and they take it into their lives. And, and we hope, I think, as people who work at places like Fordham, as educators, um, that the stories of these people who gave their lives on behalf of others um, will inspire people and in whatever their chosen career will be to seek justice through their work.
0: After the murders of these six priests and uh, the housekeeper and her daughter, we had someone from Fordham, Fordham Dean Brackley, went to the University of Central America, UCA, to sort of pick up the work. And, Father Neal, you knew Dean Brackley?
3: Yes, I I knew Dean well. I began to know Dean, I think the year was 1979, and Dean was a student uh, in Chicago and living in a Jesuit house there in Hyde Park. And um, a nun by the name of Sister Marjorie Tewett, who is deceased now, uh, she was in the South Bronx where I had been working at the time and came to us and told us about uh, this remarkable young student who was going to be ordained soon and that he would love to work in a place like South Bronx because he wanted to work with the poor And she said, as much as I know about the South Bronx, it fits that description. Uh, So I made a trip out to Chicago because we were starting a project as well in community organizing. And um, it struck me that in our own analysis of the South Bronx at the time, uh, we would describe, uh, very often, clerics would describe the people as people without hope. But I think it also... It touched us. We were clergy without hope very often. And Why do you say that? Why were you? I say up? that because of the political structures, South Bronx. I'm looking at. I'm talking about housing. I'm talking about drug con- drug selling. I'm talking about uh, crime in general. Uh, I'm talking about poor people who were constantly moving. The mobility rate was very high because of the destruction that was taking place. Um, Father Neil
0: about what year was this or years? I,
3: I'm talking about uh, I was in the South Bronx from 1958 to 1985, mm-hmm. and I would say that the the, the very, very uh, concentrated years of all of this were more through the 60s and the 70s and creeping into the 80s. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so Dean Brackley uh, came to New York, and we were just about starting a community organization called South Bronx People for Change. And we were looking for somebody that fit the description, somebody who would do theological reflection. And uh, Can I
0: stop you? What's theological reflection? I'm sorry.
3: I'll give you an example of it. Okay. We uh, were crime-ridden, and I'm talking about the Hunts Point section of the Bronx. Prostitution was right wide open in the streets of the South Bronx over in the Hunts Point section. Mm-hmm. Nobody seemed to be doing anything about it. And so we complained to the, the police department at the time, had some rallies, and nothing happened.
0: What excuse did the police give you for not, for them not attempting to try to clean up the area at the time?
3: Well, what we found out we did some research about the police department, and uh, we realized that the captain didn't have the power to be able to make a lot of changes. He couldn't bring in all of the policemen he wanted to bring in. We wanted to point that out to him. And also we wanted to let the people know that it was our voices that were going to change that situation. We would give the captain a report card. At the end of the discussion with the captain, we gave him um, an F, (laughs) that he had uh, failed the test. The captain was livid. But afterwards, we all came together to bring out the question of justice. And we wanted the people to see themselves as the victims because they were the victims and that they, the only way the South Bronx was going to change was by the people having a voice and, having, uh, and actually bringing about social change. And we wanted to see how that matched the message of Jesus Christ and the gospel. Dean Brackley comes in because he conducted those reflection on the gospel.
0: So Dean Brackley had a feel for what it was like to work with the poor when he went to El Salvador is that correct? He
3: had a lot of good experience from South Bronx. What did he take with him from here? I think he took the experience of being in a situation that cried out for hope, cried out for change. When we were describing Salvador, very much the situation of the South Bronx. So Dean received a lot of good training in that situation. And I stayed in contact with him After that, uh, because we worked together for 10 years in that situation, from the experience he had there, put together, uh, like a magazine, I would say, and, and it resembled very much a comic book on how communities could organize themselves. And it was done in English and Spanish, very, very attractive, and we used that as an instrument to be able to bring stuff to the consciousness of the people by learning, by teaching how... All of that was about to come about.
0: Father Neal, did Dean Brackley talk to you before he chose to go to El Salvador? Yes. And what what was that conversation he, like? He
3: was very torn because he loved very much the South Bronx and the people, and yet at the same time, the call to Salvador because of the the death of the Jesuit martyrs was louder, and uh, Dean uh, felt that uh, he could work there. He certainly had the academic background to be able to work at the university. He had the courage, he had the spirit of poverty, tremendous spirit of poverty, and uh, also identification with the people.
0: This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon discussing the Jesuit martyrs of El Salvador, their murders, their mission, and their legacy, with Dr. Michael Lee, Dr. Jim McCartan, and Father Neal. So help me understand this. We have this dean, Brackley, from Fordham, saying, I am now going to help the poor in a country where six priests have just gotten murdered doing the same work he's about to step into. Did he talk to you about fear?
3: Yes. talk to me about fear. And uh, An incident I can give you is I went to Salvador a couple of times, but one of the first times I went, I wanted to go to the cathedral where Monseñor Romero was, and uh, we parked the the Jeep that Dean had, and I had um, medications, different heart medications for myself. And when I came back from the cathedral and got onto the Jeep, uh, all the medicine was gone. And so I asked Dean, I said, listen, do you know anybody around here that can renew medicine? Why
0: was the medicine gone? It was robbed. Somebody stole it. Yeah,
3: somebody stole it. Okay. From the Jeep. Uh, Dean uh, said, yes, I'll get it for you this afternoon. He's a very nice doctor and I know him from the campus. But I also asked Dean, I said, why do you know this doctor? Just, you know, and he said, well, I had palpitations. Mm. And Dean was a very healthy young man, very athletic. And he said, well, you know, I'm down here, obviously, and every once in a while I have to go someplace at nighttime, and I pass the police precinct down here, and it's dark, and I often wonder, knowing what had happened to the other Jesuit fathers, uh, uh, not necessarily that that I feel so much I'm going to be assassinated or anything like that, it just makes me very much afraid when I walk by here at nighttime. Mm. Uh, so I knew that was because of the the fear of the country uh, the, that was all over.
0: I want to ask, uh, this question is for anybody, what was the atmosphere like once Dean Brackley got to El Salvador?
3: Dean loved the campus, loved the university. We spent some time with him at the university. We went out to some of the mission places he went to. And one of the places I stayed overnight uh, with him was a place called Hayaki. Hayaki was, a, 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 what I would say, a campesino town, a, 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 an outlying chapel area that I think they called Cantones, these little areas. And uh, So Dean would go up there on the weekend. He discovered after a while that there were soldiers always in the back when he did a sermon, listening to him. And some of the people in Hayaki bought some of the propaganda of the government, that the government was going to be their big protector, et cetera, and Dean he was a prudent man. He he wasn't looking for a big fight, but he also believed in teaching justice, and he also believed in trying to allow the people to see what to understand what was happening in Salvador and how it affected their lives.
2: I think we should remember too is that uh, Dean Brackley was one of two Jesuits from the United States who, in the months after. These murders in November 1989 made the choice to volunteer themselves to go in the place of the murdered Jesuits. Both Dean Brackley and Charles Byrne are now dead, but um, Byrne was a Jesuit. uh, And that uh, wasn't
0: from anything that happened in El Salvador?
2: No, it was Mm -hmm. not. Um, uh, Byrne uh, was on the faculty and administrator at... uh, Santa Clara University, also a Jesuit-sponsored university in California. And again, both of them made the choice, volunteered themselves to go in the place of their brother Jesuits.
0: I also am still trying to understand how did the murders of the Jesuits actually affect the campus environment, or did it?
1: Well, you could say that those murders affected the entire war. It had lasted nine years, and there was really very little hope of a negotiated end. Both sides were hardened and seemed like they could go on forever, particularly in the case of the government with the U.S. backing it with its uh, billions of dollars in military aid. What could break this uh, stalemate? Tragically, it was these murders, because many would point to the international pressure of these Jesuit priests being murdered, that got the parties to the negotiation table so that the war would end just three years after their murders
2: there's an irony here too that i would want to not miss when the the salvadoran military men went in and murdered uh these jesuits and their co-workers there were two things that they did to indicate uh, that it was really their enemies one was they used a russian weapon an ak-47 Um, which would be a sign that these people were Russian-supported, these leftist, um, communist-leaning types. So they used a weapon that would hopefully implicate the left, and they also left behind a sign that said, this was done by leftist (laughs) rebels. The irony is, you know, in, in an act that was meant to implicate the other side, what happened was the credibility of the military and of the, the government of, of President Alfredo Cristiani eroded in such a way that they were made, as Michael Lee has said, to go to the negotiating table and come bring the, the war to an end. Support from the United States over the course of the 1980s was to the tune of a billion dollars in military support of El Salvador, support of the anti-communist forces there. Um, that dried up pretty rapidly after. These murders.
0: Because this wasn't just normal outrage from the people there. This was outrage internationally, correct?
2: It was outrage internationally, but I think it's very important to remember the name of a fellow by the name of Joe Moakley, who was a congressman from Massachusetts who was called upon in the month after the murders in 1989 to lead a congressional task force um, that would do its own investigation and in a a way investigate the investigation that was supposed to be undertaken by the government and the military in El Salvador. Joe Moakley was a member of Congress who was what he called himself a bread-and-butter politician, chasing after Social Security checks for his constituents. This event changed his life both politically and personally, and it became a personal quest for him to get to the bottom of who it was, in fact, that murdered these, these eight people. The story is long and has a lot of permutations, but one of the things that Moakley and his task force found out was that 19 of the 26 military people that were involved in these killings had training that was supported by the United States government. And once that became clear to Moakley and to many of his colleagues in Congress, including people in the opposing party, the Republican Party, their support for sending more money to El Salvador to support the anti-communist forces there began to dry up.
0: Mm -hmm. Who can summarize what happened to the soldiers?
2: Well, I'll give a shot. Others can chime in. This is Jim. Two of the uh, soldiers were convicted in 1991 of the murders. Two years later, President Christianity pardoned them there's an interesting kind of part of the story that's very recent. A civil uh, human rights attorney in California had uh, decided to take this case on a few years ago, and on behalf of the families of five of the six Jesuits who were Spanish-born, try to pursue a human rights case in in the Spanish courts. Um, In the course of her investigation, uh, she discovered that two of the of the several people who were implicated in the murders lived in the United States. One of them, um, I think nothing is really known of. There's a speculation that he may be in a witness protection program. The other, it was discovered, um, had lied uh, several times on his immigration paperwork, disavowed his connection to the Salvadoran military. Um, and so, about a year ago, um, was put in a US prison. He is in the middle of a sentence that is due to be up next year. And the question is, will the U.S. government extradite him to Spain to be put on trial for these murders? And that will determine a lot over the next year, whether justice is done in the case of these murders.
0: So I have to ask now what impact the deaths had, not just on the dean, but even on some of the students at the university. Can anyone speak to that? What was the campus like?
1: Well, the campus was always kind of a divided place in and of itself. It really took a toll on the campus because the Jesuits were so involved in the administration of it. Some would suggest even too much so. They were not only professors at the universities, but they were the president, deans, and rectors of divisions. Uh, They had A lot of the administrative tasks in this very small team of people and then you murder the whole team and and you've got a a campus that that is almost headless but there were several reasons for that one of which was so many of the faculty would have had their lives threatened and their families lay professors who have families children could have put their whole families in jeopardy whereas these Jesuit priests could speak rather boldly and not put others at risk so, so there's a couple of different sides to the so coin. So, Michael, of, did they leave? Their, the Jesuits? The faculty. Some left, but others took a more secondary role. They didn't have to put the public face that would draw threats that these Jesuits did. Others were very bold in them themselves. I mean, going back even earlier, 10 years earlier, a good amount of the administration left to form a, a civilian military junta that ultimately failed. But in the context of these 89 murders, you have uh, this huge crater formed at the campus, this leadership, and they were public voices. E. in particular, was a public figure in a way that we're not really used to in terms of U.S. university presidents. I mean, he was participating in national debates on TV, on the radio, et cetera. So it was a blow to the university, but it was also a blow publicly, this immensely well-known figure is eliminated. And so it really speaks to the courage and the tenacity of people like Charlie Byrne and Dean Brackley who could step in and, and pick up their roles to try to sustain things. And I'll say about Dean in particular, his work in the South Bronx with People for Change, it's, it's from the bottom up. If there's one thing that UCA could be accused of during the war was it, it tended to be a top-down approach. You know, students at that time in the middle of a civil war a Kutia's main focus was on research, uh, publications, uh, getting the, the other side of the reality out there. The teaching, I think, took a secondary role. Whereas you see in the years after the murders, you know Dean would, would forge a, a scholarship program that would allow Campesino and Campesina students who had never, ever had the opportunity to attend university uh, to go there. And their presence there also transforms the children of wealthy families who would have never had contact with them. And, and you see that kind of organic a model of change that Dean had such a profound experience with here in the States, making its impact uh, and, I think, kind of complementing and, and filling out uh, what was going on at the UCA prior to the murders.
0: So, Father Neal, is that the type of legacy that Dean wanted to leave behind, the scholarships, the helping others?
3: Very much so, and I think he joined the... Um Board of uh, the University of San Francisco, I think, became part of that. Dean was a very busy person, but he told me he took it because he wanted to make sure that that ability for students to be able to get further education would continue. Yes, definitely uh, Dean would have been very happy with that and always raised that question. He would talk about, as we say, the middle class, and he had some kind of an expression always that, um, and I can't remember it at the moment, mm-hmm. but I also would like to be able to say what you had said about Hedio Correa And Dean was inspired very much by him. I was down in um, Nicaragua prior to this, and uh, I met Hedio Corilla. Mm. Went to lunch with him, and there were two other priests with me, and we wanted to find out what was happening in Nicaragua. And Hedio Correa had such a great mind in being able to analyze, but at that time... He was over in Nicaragua because of the threat of assassination in Salvador, and yet he went back to Salvador. Dean knew all the consequences or the possibilities that could happen to him. So, yes, people very much love Dean. They still talk about him. He was an inspiration also not just of a good professor, a brave guy, a very talented guy in the streets, but he was also a very holy person. I experienced that myself with him because I lived with him. And just to see Dean, simple, simple lifestyle, I I just admired him so much, and he had an impact on all of us who were diocesan clergy, but not only the clergy, but but also the uh, people, the parishioners of ours. I loved them.
0: Well, let me ask you, Michael, obviously you've written uh, books and won prizes over your writings. What legacy do you think was left? Let's go around the table.
1: Uh, This is Michael. When thinking about the legacy of the UCA, I think it's important um, not to confuse what they did with simple activism. They talked about doing things, working for justice universitariamente, in the manner of a university. Uh, There's a great story that John Sobrino, one of the Jesuits who survived because he had been out of the country that fateful night, he tells about Ella Curia who's teaching uh, Jesuits who are in formation. And you know, these young guys, they just want to be out in the fields with the people. What are we doing in this classroom? <laughs> and he says to them, You know, we do our work en un escritorio, pero no este un escritorio. That means we do our work in a desk, but not from a desk. The, the model of the UCA is dedicating knowledge, the power of the intellect to the questions of justice and doing it with all the resources of a university. And that's that's an extraordinary example, uh, to do your work in a desk, but not from a desk, to be located in this reality, be it poverty, be it racism, be it immigration, but to put your mind and your body there, and from there, do your work, I think is an incredible model.
2: This is Jim. in. I just want to tie, you know, the story of these men to what we see happening in Catholicism today. Um, Above all, I think they're models of what Christian life and service um, mean in the contemporary world. Um, And as Pope Francis has suggested, um, the Catholic Church, the Christian community, ought to be a church of the poor and for the poor and in service to the poor. Um, I think the memory of these men and their co-workers should remind us of what a Christian life means um, to live in service of the poor.
3: I think also the uh, phrase I was looking for before was uh, downward nobility. That was a favorite uh, phrase that Dean used. And the whole idea of being with the poor
1: that so would come from the United States to El Salvador. He said, let the poor break your heart. Yes. And, uh, and that's, a, that's a real uh, powerful legacy he leaves behind. Thank you,
0: Michael. I'd like to thank my guests, Dr. Michael Lee, Dr. Jim McCartan, and Father Neal. I'd also like to thank my producer, Megan Connor. This has been Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. Stay with us. George Bodarki and CityScape are next. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon.